Hello and welcome to Consumer Frank's podcast. Today's podcast is a masterclass on what to do if you receive faulty goods and how to deal with any dispute under the Consumer Rights Act. I am Frank Brehenny. Christmas is an important time of the year when we shop around for those long-desired gifts and hope that the recipients of gifts will receive them in good order. But Christmas is not the only time when we may buy gifts or goods that we use in our daily lives. We will all be aware to an extent of our rights, usually bound up in guarantees, warranties, or through some notion of our consumer rights. I also think that there is a school of belief or thoughts out there, possibly encouraged by some consumer commentary, that believes that he who shouts loudest will win the day if we have a dispute with a retailer. I think it is not helped by some retailers either through their pre-sale actions or indeed their post-sale reactions. For example, I was speaking to a senior member of staff for a major retailer the other day, And they told me that their own central customer service unit will often instruct staff to simply exchange the product in dispute for a new product. Now I can see the logic. It lessens pressures on the commercial imperative to make as much money as quickly as possible without becoming engaged in a dispute. And it potentially promotes the possibility that a particular consumer will remain sticky to the brand. But I think that only works or is a viable strategy for small consumable items. How many times have we heard of the difficulties consumers face with larger consumable items such as washing machines, fridges, dryers or indeed cars? In many cases disputes can continue for many months without resolution. In one case I was approached by a consumer called Liz, not her real name. She had bought a used car, a brand that she was familiar with, and agreed a price along with the part exchange of her old vehicle. On the day she collected the vehicle, she was informed that the car had gone through its pre-sale check and no problems were found. But she discovered that the car was wet on the inside. It had become backlogged in the number of vehicles to be delivered that day within the valet queue. The Garage, a well-known large national dealership, arranged for the car to be covered in the interior with plastic sheeting, assuring Liz that the car would dry out within 24 hours on her drive. On her drive home, a warning light flashed on her console to indicate that there was a problem with one of her tyres, and she called into the petrol station and discovered that the tyres were in fact in good order and at the right pressure. The next day, she received another warning sign that there was a problem with the tyres, but she also discovered that there was a problem with the start-stop fuel-saving facility on the vehicle. It didn't work. Liz was familiar with the start-stop facility found in cars and ensured that the operating conditions for the vehicle were set so as to give the stop-stop facility the opportunity to kick in. It did not. The car was sold with a three-month warranty for its mechanics and labour should anything go wrong. On the day she discovered a problem with the stop-start 
she contacted the garage and informed them of the two faults. They very quickly agreed that they would have the vehicle back in again and repair it under the warranty. There was one problem though. Liz was about to go away on holiday for just over two months and would not be able to get the vehicle back to the garage. Despite this, the garage agreed that they would still accept the vehicle under its warranty when she came back. For her part, Liz advised the garage that the vehicle would not be used while she was away and it would sit on her drive. So Liz went away on her holiday and when she returned two and a half months later, she discovered that the car would not start. She thought that this was unusual because of her previous trips away, always in the summer months. She never had a problem with any other vehicle. They always started first time. So Liz charged the battery up and the car started and all appeared to be well. The next morning, when she needed the car to go to work, it failed to start. She tried to charge it again and encountered the same problem. So Liz decided because she needed to use the car for work that she would buy a new battery. When she came to change the battery, she found that the old battery was so rusted in that she had to call for help to release the old battery. Once the new battery was fitted, the car started and she was able to use it for work. The next day, as she was travelling to work, another warning sign flashed up, warning her that the airbags were in danger of being deployed, so she was instructed to stop driving the vehicle and contact the dealership straight away. So Liz contacted them immediately, but the garage told her there was nothing to worry about, and they agreed to accept the car early. Still under the sale warranty, it would not cost Liz a penny. So Liz agreed to have the car repaired. The dealership also offered to provide Liz with a hire car without charge, with insurance, so that she wouldn't be inconvenienced, and Liz accepted their offer. So all seemed well. The car was to be repaired within a few days and Liz was not to be inconvenienced. Then she received a call from the dealership. They claimed that they couldn't find the problem she was claiming about. Liz found out that they hadn't taken the car on the road, they'd simply looked at it in the workshop. They thought that if there were any problems with the vehicle, they may have been caused by an insurance tracker fitted to the car. Liz advised that the tracker was not hers and surely this should have been found at the time the vehicle underwent its pre-sale check. She did not get a reply to that point. Liz suggested to them that they drive the car on the road and sure enough the dealership found the faults that Liz had complained about. However, they couldn't determine the cause of the fault and had to send the car to another specialist garage to determine the problem. It was found that there was a problem with an electrical control unit and that they would order one and repair the car. So again, Liz agreed to this action. Then another problem occurred. The hire car was burning fuel at a colossal rate at roughly 7 miles to the gallon and that was on journeys no more than 20 miles each way. The dealership agreed to change the hire car but provided a car that was virtually empty of fuel. The weeks went by and at first Liz received updates every two to three days 
Essentially, the part was an order and they were waiting. Then the message changed. The part was on back order and they had no idea when the part would be delivered. Then the call stopped. Liz had to make calls or visits to the dealership and found that people were not available. Ten weeks after she bought the car in for repair, the straw that broke the camel's back was when the hire car flashed up that there was a fault with the tyres. Liz felt that she was trapped in a groundhog day. So what to do? Liz had complained. She had been constructive, polite and willing to be guided by the dealership, but she had begun to question her confidence in this car, the quality of the hire cars, the skill set of the dealership and the most important question, by agreeing with the dealership, had she given them a blank open-ended cheque to deal with her car in any way they saw fit or could she challenge them? So with Liz, I examined the issues and looked at her rights. I determined that through this whole sorry saga, there was nothing that Liz should reproach herself for. Some may argue that she let things run on for too long. I disagree. She reacted to the problem and the representations, both proportionately and correctly. So we looked at the issues of breach contract whether the contract was delivered either negligently or recklessly, whether the vehicle had been misrepresented, whether those representations had caused her to make an economic decision she wouldn't have made otherwise, and whether an offence had been committed under the unfair trading regulations. Now, despite the relevance of those options, there existed a clearer route toward resolution for Liz under the Consumer Rights Act. This is an important piece of consumer legislation which started life as the EU's Consumer Rights Directive. All member states were required to implement the directive into their legal systems, hence the Act within the UK. On a side note, quite what will happen to its provisions after Brexit remains to be seen. So, back to the story. I helped Liz write a formal letter of complaint because one had not been sent in this dispute. In any consumer complaint, it is vitally important that you put into writing the nature of your dispute. My advice is always to formally put the complaint in writing and send it by post to the company concerned. You can also send a copy of the letter at the same time by email. For me, there is something tangible with a hard copy letter received in the post, particularly if it's signed for, whereas a digital version has the potential to get lost or forgotten. Within Liz's letter, she discussed all the problems with the vehicle and how they had dealt with it. But in the letter, she also set out her rights under the Consumer Rights Act. Here are the key points she raised. She wrote, For the present, I shall only deal with the Consumer Rights Act 2015 rights, without prejudice to any other rights I have in contract, misrepresentation and rights under the Unfair Trading Regulations 2008. The principal rights are 
Section 9, that the goods must be of satisfactory quality. Now, in her letter, she pointed out that she had referred to those issues further in the letter, which demonstrated that the car failed on this point. Section 10, that the goods must be fit for a particular purpose. And again, I'd point the listener to the fact that in her letter, she'd pointed out those particular issues to demonstrate that the car failed on this particular point. She went on. Section 20. This sets up my right to reject the goods. Section 22. This provides for my short-term right to reject within 30 days. Section 22.6. This specifically states, and I quote, If the consumer requests or agrees to the repair or replacement of goods, the period mentioned in subsection 3 or 4 stops for the running length of the waiting period. The time, she says, as I stated, started on the day I bought the car and suspended when I booked the car in for repair two days later. Now, listeners should bear in mind that this is an important point because that is the stop clock in action, the suspension of the short-term right to reject goods. She carried on. Section 22.7. This confirms the action I have taken to exercise that right by informing you and further confirmed by this letter and email with today's timestamp. Section 23.2. This confirms my right to repair, that you must carry out that repair within a reasonable time period and without inconvenience to me. You will naturally cite that you have provided me with a hire car. My position is that the time for repair is open-ended. It has become without an end date and therefore unreasonable and therefore inconvenient. If necessary, I will define inconvenient. Section 23.5. This defines how to calculate what is a reasonable time for repair. Section 23.6. This concerns how a consumer must give sufficient time for repair It states, a consumer who requires or agrees to the repair of goods cannot require the trader to replace them or exercise the short-term right to reject without giving the trader a reasonable time to repair them, unless giving the trader that time would cause significant inconvenience to the consumer. It is clear from my actions, says Liz, that I have given you reasonable time. I am being presented with an open-ended, without-end position before the car is repaired. In these circumstances, I do not fall foul of this section, as I have given you sufficient time to repair, hence my invocation of my right to reject the goods. Section 23.8. This defines what is meant by repair. Section 24. This provides for my final right to reject. For the present, she says, this summary of my rights should not be considered as exhaustive. So Liz sent her letter without demanding any time frame for action and awaited their response. The response was received and was regressively typical of many companies. A complete denial that they'd failed, failure to deal with the points that they had raised and a reinterpretation of rights despite the fact that they were set out very clearly indeed. 
So Liz sent another letter, and dear listener, you will be relieved to hear that I am not going to go through uh, that second letter because it is extremely legalistic. But what I am going to do is I'm going to put a link on this podcast which will direct you to the full uh, written article concerning this masterclass and you'll be able to see the issues that she covered. But briefly, Liz dealt with each of the points they raised and provided a rebuttal. Then she set out her interpretation of what they were saying to her and where she thought they had failed. She then set out some consumer rights cases which dealt with actions under the consumer rights legislation and the reasonableness of rejection whilst maintaining her position on contract, misrepresentation and unfair trading regulation possibilities. Liz also researched complaints made against the dealership through reviews and found that other consumers had suffered with similar problems or problems with other disputes. She advised the company of these public reviews and that she had reserved her right to trace those consumers and obtain statements as to their experience so as to demonstrate how poorly their sales and after-sales representations and service really were. She then gave them seven working days to resolve and repair the car or to accept her rights to a short-term rejection and repay the money she'd already paid. Liz then advised that she would, after seven working day deadline, then seek further advices and issue proceedings from money claims online without further recourse to them. She also offered that she would suspend any court action if they indicated that they wished to resolve the matter through mediation. She also made the point that she would present all correspondence to the court if the case was found in her favour on the question of costs. In the interim, Liz also sent details of her complaint to the head office for the group who owned the dealership. She did this so as to demonstrate that she was doing everything she could to try and resolve the matter, because the court would expect that she had done so. Now Liz heard nothing for six working days, and it looked as if she would have to prepare her papers for court, when, on the seventh day, and this almost sounds biblical, the dealership made contact. Miraculously, they had found the pass and the car was being repaired as they spoke. They would also pay for the replacement battery and filled her returned car with fuel. A result. But was it really necessary to cause an ordinary consumer to have to jump through hoops and suffer the stress of thinking that they were going to have to go to court? Of course not. For those companies listening to this podcast, let this be a lesson on how not to do business with your consumers, because if you do, you're going to find out that more and more of them are going to wise up and become more savvy about their rights under the Consumer Rights Act. Until the next time, Take care.